So um, something bad happens when you as a human being messes up. First thing is you, you start to feel like a failure, right? The problem is when you feel like a failure, sometimes you run the risk of becoming one because unless you could figure out how to break a cycle, uh, guilt, shame, inadequacy, these are all things that have the potential to paralyze you from being everything that God's called you to be. Today, though, we are telling the sort of famous story of the Apostle Peter, and we're just going to tell the, the whole arc of the story, but what you're going to see is what Jesus does with someone who feels like a failure. And I'm excited to talk about this, because I think that if you can see how Jesus treats people who've messed up like us, you have the potential to see who you are as a son or daughter of the Lord, and it gives you the ability to walk with confidence in God's calling. Today, of course, I'm excited. We're starting a brand new sermon series called The Characters of Easter. There's a pastor named Daniel Darling who wrote a book about all the villains and heroes, cowards and crooks who were there and witnessed history's biggest miracle. And for the next couple weeks, as we approach Easter, I'm adopting his outline and just Honestly, I'm just going to tell you a bunch of stories as experienced by the people closest to Jesus. As we approach Easter, you'll hear a lot of this pastor's influence today, but I love it because we get to talk about Jesus. And I'm convinced that the next season, as we lead up to the celebration of the resurrection, I think it can be more meaningful, it can be rest-giving and life-sustaining if you're able to pause and listen again to the greatest story ever told. In fact, I'll just throw it out to you. If you think of someone who can use stronger faith or someone who's just curious about the story of Jesus, I want to encourage you to invite them to join you here at church for the next couple weeks as we just open up God's Word and hear the story of Jesus. Let me give you one warning, though. I'm going to cover a lot of information this morning in the next... Uh, 28 minutes or so, and I'm just going to summarize a lot of the verses that you'll see on the screen behind me or in the handout, so I'd encourage you to read behind me or read in your Bibles or in the handout as I summarize some of this. So here we go. Our story this morning starts with a man whose name, well, starts off as Simon. We find him, he's a commercial fisherman, which sounds like a great hobby if you like fishing, but if you grow up in ancient times in a fishing town, fishing was just a job. It was a rough, dirty job. It meant hard work, long hours, and you could earn good money, but it was still just a job. And that's where Simon is. He's working with his brother Andrew. He's got another set of brothers who he's partnering with. Their names are James and John. You'll see their names pop up again. There's a blue-collar, smelly, not a lot of time for hobbies sort of life for this man named Simon. He's the kind of guy who will sleep when he's dead. He works while the sun is up, and he owns more tools than he owns books by a, a significant number. In Luke chapter 4, we discover that he owns a home, and he's married. To be honest, there's nothing that special about him. He's a fairly normal guy living in Galilee which is where Jesus happened to spend most of his ministry, hang out with people like Simon, normal guys, hardworking, salt of the earth, 
Uh, we'll meet the city people later, but Galileans didn't care for all of the sophistication of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem returns a favor, we discover. Simon didn't have many other hobbies. He just sort of ran his business, got his hands dirty, and he probably never stopped smelling like fish. He had a brother, though, Andrew, who talks to him quite a bit. He, we know Andrew uh, spent some time with this rogue prophet named John called the Baptizer, sort of a strange guy, very confrontational. You could read the story about John the Baptist. He, uh, he was like nothing people saw before. He wasn't like, let's have a beautiful baptism. He was sort of like, you're a dirty sinner, let's hose you off kind of pastor with a deep sense of seriousness. And John was consistently, though, not not just pointing people's sin, but pointing to someone else, pointing to someone who'd come after him. And you, you can only imagine, while fishing, while folding up nets, while waiting for a fish, you gotta imagine Andrew was talking to his brother Peter about this. Until one day, Andrew, Simon's brother, was there when John the baptizer pointed to someone else and said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And that day, Andrew, Simon's brother, started following Jesus, just listening and was captivated. And it seems like from the text, that very day, he runs back to Peter and says these words, we have found the Messiah, which was a big deal. I imagine him just grabbing Simon's busy arm, who is in the middle of cleaning something, uh, said, I know it sounds crazy, Peter, or Simon, but trust me, I've never met anyone who talks like Jesus does. And that was, as far as we can tell, the very first time Simon heard the name Jesus. And his life was never the same. In Jesus' word, Simon became Peter, the rock. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is the Hebrew word for rock, translated Peter into Greek, the name we're more familiar with. Here's the thing, though. When you meet Jesus, your life may never be the same, but the next day might look very similar. The next day, Peter just goes right back to work. That's how it often goes, right? You meet Jesus, someone invites you to church, you hear the name of Christ, you hear about faith, and you're, you're interested, and God changes your life over time, but it's usually not overnight. God usually changes people at a slow and steady pace. And that day, Peter, like a lot of us, goes back to what he was doing the day before. He goes back to work, he's fishing, But Jesus isn't done. He keeps calling out. One day, this is a crazy story, Jesus shows up to Peter's work site. The two brothers had worked the deep waters for another day's catch. And he calls out to Peter on the boat, follow me. And says, I will make you fishers of men. And I, I think we add a lot of theology to following Jesus, but Peter didn't know any of that. He assumed Jesus said, literally, follow me this way. So that's what Peter does. He literally follows, uh, Peter literally follows Jesus back to wherever Jesus is going. And as it turns out, Jesus headed to, of all places, Peter's synagogue in Capernaum. And uh, it's like a church service. And over the next season, he hears Jesus preaching. And over the next weeks and months, they become friends. 
Jesus, from what we could tell, stays at Peter's house. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law from an illness. Peter's house becomes like a gathering place. He's hosting dinners. He's having people over. And, and while Jesus is healing other people, Jesus pursues Peter like he does us. One day, Peter has a bad day, though. He's been fishing all night. And it's one of these jobs where everything that can go wrong goes wrong. You ever have one of those? And Peter is exhausted. He's been up all night. And it's not the right time, but here's Jesus, the preacher, on the beach. And he's not like, hey, Peter, I was thinking of you. It's, hey, I got a big audience here. Lots of people listening to me preach, Jesus might say. And instead of Jesus going, hey, I know you're busy. I'm not going to bother you. Jesus goes, well, you've been up all night. Let me borrow your boat that you just took in and cleaned. Let's go out one more time. You probably weren't going to sleep anyway. And I'm going to use it to talk to the audience. Can you imagine Jesus does this, goes to your job site, stands on your desk, gets on your excavator, opens up Zoom on your laptop and talks to other people after you just pulled an all-nighter. Fantastic, right? Eventually, though, it's all over. The crowds go home. Peter is finally done cleaning up everything, and he's about to go home. And Jesus urges the men to give the nets another shot. Can you imagine? Jesus is going, guys, I know you worked all night. I know you're the experts. You probably just want to go home. But here's what I, I would do, Jesus says. Try it one more time. When you read the text, it's really funny. Peter seems kind of annoyed. Like, Peter knows how to fish better than anyone else there. He's been fishing his whole life. And Jesus is a good teacher, uh, does miracles, knows a lot about theology, but uh, he's a carpenter telling fishermen how to fish. Uh, Can you imagine, like, imagine you work a job where you have a client who hires you to do something because you're the expert, and uh, then they want to tell you how to do your job. (laughs) Like, uh, if you're a teacher... And you've been doing it for years, and all of a sudden you got a first-time parent telling you how to do your job, right? Uh, This is what's happening here, right? Uh, And Peter's kind of going, Jesus, one of us is a fisherman, one of us is a carpenter. Uh, You know what he's thinking, right? Come on, Jesus, you've you've never fished a day in your life. Like, uh, I don't go to your shop and tell you how to do carpentry, right? And Peter's already in a bad mood, and uh, this is, if some of you don't get fish, you stick to faith, I'll stick to fish, Peter was probably thinking. And Peter, I'm not going to read the text, you can. Peter learns an amazing lesson that changed his life forever. He learned that Jesus is an expert in more than just faith. For followers, he's interested in more than just Lord's Day worship, and it's not enough that you just Uh, ascend to to God with faith or creed or doctrine. He wants to have control over all of our lives. In fact, Jesus sometimes interferes with parts of our lives that you think you have control of. But what Peter learned is Jesus knows more about fish than Peter does. Jesus knows how to run your life better than you do because Jesus has, he's made everything. And to his credit, Peter gave in. One translation says uh, to Peter, or uh, Peter says to Jesus, if you say so, with a grudging shrug. But Peter grabs the nice, folded, clean net that he just put away, and he throws him back over the side of the boat, and Jesus did some sort of miracle. And sometimes God does that. He shows up in the most 
ordinary moments. Jesus is having a bad day, or Peter is having a bad day, and Jesus opens up the heavens just a crack to show a group of fishermen just a glimpse of how powerful God is. And you got to imagine this. Jesus has invaded the one place that Peter thinks he has control over. And all of a sudden, an empty net in a fishless lake without explanation becomes full of fish. That was a life-changing moment for Peter. Peter knows the sea, but Jesus made it. And Peter responds in that moment, really it's the only thing you could say when you really see the glory of God, when you really see how big and in control God is, Peter just worships. In fact, he says, get away from me because I am a sinful man. He's just trying to process how big and grand and great God is, I think automatically makes you humble. That none of us measure up to God's glory. The next chapter of Peter's life, following the Lord, takes Peter across Galilee to Judea. He sees things he could have never imagined. He saw places he never could have foreseen. He saw terminal illness get healed. He saw lamed people walk. He saw blind people have sight. One day, Jesus raises a servant girl from the dead. Peter sees it. Peter was there twice when the Lord of creation scoops a little boy's lunchbox and stretches it to feed thousands of desperate people with leftovers to to get rid of. There's this one day, Peter wakes up from a nap, uh, and Jesus saves the disciples from this giant storm and a shipwreck. Jesus just talks to the water, and the sea is as smooth as glass. And we get to see uh, Peter's characteristics a bit. Peter's the one who talks before he thinks. Jesus embraces him. Peter's the one who sees Jesus walking on the water. And if you, if you know the story, Peter jumps out of the boat, tries to walk on the water. Peter's the one that when Jesus takes James and John to the top of the mountain and see the transfiguration and all of God's glory. Remember Peter? Peter's like, hey guys, let's, uh, let's build some tents and camp out here for a while. This is great. This is Peter. Maybe nothing shows more of what this fisherman turned follower was like. Was that when he answered this haunting question, there's this mountaintop. There's this sort of strange scene in the book of John. Jesus has thousands of fair-weather fans who just decide to leave Jesus, who gives them really hard truth. And Jesus offers a human question to whoever's still there. He goes, Peter, are you going to leave too? Like, this is really hard. Lots of people have left. And if Peter walked away at that moment, it would have made sense. Lots of people see God, see faith, they see the Lord, and they walk away because, well, allowing Jesus to control your whole life takes humility. And in this life-defining moment, Peter answers, Lord, to whom do we go? Where else can we go? You, God, have, you, Lord, have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Where where else can I go, Peter goes. 
In other words, there's, there's no substitute for Jesus. There still isn't. This is why we stop every Easter and think about a bloody, a bloody cross and an empty tomb. It's why we worship the Lord uh, Sunday mornings. This is why when we're sorrowful and disappointed and going through something really difficult, we can return to Jesus, sometimes even in, in just jumbled prayers. There's no one else like Jesus. There's no alternative to the Lord. Jesus, I mean, Jesus rises from the dead. He made the earth. Who else can we go to with problems that seem overwhelming to us? Which brings us ultimately to the defining moment of the story of Peter. You can't tell the story of Easter without talking about Peter's failure. Let me set it up this way. So uh, Peter and the disciples set up, this is the Friday before, in Bethany, they're, they're not too far from Jerusalem, and they have set up this, well, they're set up for a week that feels like a year. It begins with an emotional high, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Jesus enters the city on a donkey, and there's crowds and palm branches. Welcome, Hosanna, King of Kings, all of that uh, pageantry. But as the days wore on, there's a growing sense of dread. There's whispers of plots by religious leaders, secret schemes to capture Jesus. It all comes to a head one awful night. It was right after Jesus and the disciples enjoyed this beautiful meal together. And Peter and John actually were, they were responsible for setting everything up. And they had all the normal things set up. And Peter kept, or sorry, Jesus kept talking about himself and his arrest and his death. And a bit of a downer at a, at a celebratory meal. And you've got to imagine Peter's wondering, wait, how can the story end well when Jesus keeps talking about getting captured? Like, that's not how to rule a kingdom. And Peter and the disciples must have been a bit disappointed. Peter left everything. He left his business, his job. He staked it all on this idea that Jesus was the Messiah that John the Baptist talked about. It's not supposed to work like this. The Messiah getting captured and killed, you only imagine how difficult this must have been for Peter. You understand where he's at. He was ready to fight to protect Jesus to win, but Jesus didn't seem to want to put up any sort of fight. Jesus predicts next that all of his disciples will uh, desert him, that one of them will betray him. And then he says this line about Peter himself that Peter would never have guessed this about himself. Simon, Simon, Luke 22 says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. Don't fail, Peter. Uh, and when you ha have turned, strengthen your brothers. And Peter says to Jesus, it's not going to happen. I will not fail. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Bring it. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times 
that you even know me. That's the setup. After the Passover meal, uh, Peter asked, or Jesus asked Peter and James one more thing. Join me in the garden, and can you pray? Jesus prays. The disciples, Peter, falls asleep. And he hears the words of Jesus. Could you not just have prayed? And, I don't know, stayed awake and watched. And then everything happened really quickly. Soldiers show up with torches and noise and swords. And Judas, their friend, embraces Jesus in a final sick display with a kiss of betrayal. And Peter loses his temper. The world is spinning. Everything seems wrong. And it's a crisis. He grabs a sword and strikes the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. You know the story. And the same impulse of faith that led Peter to jump out of a boat and walk on water was the same impulse of faith that drew Peter close to the trial. Everyone else sort of ran away to Peter's credit. He sort of lingered around this fire in, in a courtyard of charcoal. And he's curious. Jesus is in holding. He's awaiting trial, and it's dark. And, and Peter is just trying to kind of hiding in the dark, perhaps, and then a servant girl asks him, you're one of the people who are with Peter or Jesus of Nazareth, right? You know the guy who's on trial right now, the guy who everyone's making a fuss about, right? The, the book of Mark says that at that moment, a rooster crows. We can't even tell if Peter heard it or not. I imagine Peter was just sort of waiting, seeing if the coast was clear, watching out for soldiers with handcuffs. Uh, finally, though, he goes back to the, the fire, and someone shouts, that guy was with Jesus, and he like straight out denies it. No, that's not me. Uh, my opinion, hearing this story, I, I don't think Peter's trying to sell out. He's just curious, trying to see what's going to happen next. And then, this is crazy, a weird detail. One of the relatives of the servant whose ear got cut off by Jesus says, didn't I see you in the garden? And in that moment, it's just a fascinating scene. Peter remembers what Jesus said about Peter denying him because he's interrupted by a rooster. And the Gospels all have different versions of the story, but Luke records a incredibly haunting detail. Somehow, as Peter is shouting that he doesn't know Jesus, somehow he sees Jesus. In that moment, the Lord turns and makes eye contact with Peter, who just denies him a third time. And you can imagine and see the, the hurt in that moment, the anguish on Jesus' face, the, the despair and failure and guilt now gnawing at this once confident, assured Peter who's just broken up. Luke records later that Peter went out and wept bitterly. That is the moment that could have defined the person of Peter. Weeping because he's a failure, bitter, because he's guilty. This is a big deal. Feeling guilty, 
feeling the weight of shame, messing up and not being able to get up again is a common but hard-to-talk-about experience for a lot of people, even Christians. Here's a fact. We've all failed in some way. We could all feel guilty for so many things. This actually affects some people more than others. I, I was reading a psychology textbook about this, and it, uh, it talked about the fact that it's really common for people to be sort of messed up because of past failure, and it described it in a hundred different ways. Sometimes when you fail, you, you get struck by something they call defensive thinking. And otherwise, you're, in other words, your default mode uh, looks like repression, like there's, there's people who have a sense of guilt that makes them feel anxious or frustrated or stressed out, and they don't really know why, like they, they disassociate it, but they're sort of struck by these symptoms because they've never dealt with their failure. And there are lots of symptoms. Sometimes when guilty feelings arise, we become angry with other people, and we're not even sure why, or we get defensive or insecure we don't take any responsibility for anything. But sometimes we go the other way. We apologize for everything, even if it's not your fault. Or I think for lots of people, I think feeling guilty gives us a higher sense of anxiety, where we get these self-condemning feelings of inferiority. We, we beat ourselves up, or we feel weak, uh, not valuable, uh, pessimistic, low sense of esteem. That's really common. For other people, there's an inability to relax, an inability to accept compliments, or sometimes you become the person who can never say no when someone asks you to do something. Or sometimes, textbook says, you get angry and you have no way of explaining it. Again, a psychology textbook says it can lead to depression, sometimes even suicide. And if that was the last we ever heard about Peter in the story of the Bible. If the next conversation we had with Peter was trying to explain why he was so messed up and messed up his family, if, if he were paralyzed by guilt and shame, if he shrunk in isolation, a victim of his own actions, we'd all understand. That's a very typical next chapter to stories of failure. That's, that's not how we know Peter, right? Today we celebrate Peter, the rock. We can celebrate the fact that Peter's story didn't have to end that way, and neither does ours. Because Peter, his fall was the beginning of his rise. In fact, at, at that moment of agony of sh and shame, Jesus looked not in condemnation, but with compassion at his friend Peter, who was sinning against him in that very moment. Romans says, while we were still sinners, that's when Christ loved us enough to die for us. Jesus didn't go on to suffer and die for perfect people. Jesus died because he loved the broken people, the failures, people like Peter, people like me and you. One of the mysteries is where Peter goes next, the next time we see his name in his story is three or four days later. There's what's well, the book of Mark, and there's angels in white robes who say, He is risen. Go tell. <laughs> who do the angels say to tell? Tell the disciples and tell me. 
Peter. <laughs> Important guy, right? Uh, tell the disciples and Peter. Apparently Jesus cares enough to, to include him in this. And maybe the story climaxes. Do you remember that story about Peter uh, fishing all night and not catching any fish? Uh, there's another story very similar to that, right after the resurrection. And I think the details are on purpose. That the three years Jesus spends with Peter are bookend by something very similar. Because Peter is fishing for all night, doesn't catch anything. Uh, empty nets... Jesus calls out from the shore, try it again, and a boatload of fish. Think about the charcoal fire that Jesus and Peter chat over. Last time that happened, the last time Peter warmed his hand over that fire, his heart was cold. But this is a story of hope and redemption. I encourage you to, to go back and read this story, but you may know that Peter may have abandoned Jesus, but you need to know something about Jesus. Jesus would never abandon Peter when he's needed. You could read this story. Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Not as a test of faithfulness, not as a way of reminding Peter of his guilt for denying three times, but as a way of calling out to Peter in love. Peter, you love me Jesus, I love you. Will you love the people that God loves? Is what Peter goes through in the last chapter of John. Peter's failure ends in victory. Because here's the thing about Jesus. He tells people like Peter that it is not your failure that defines you. It is the love of God that defines you. That's the story of Peter. If you're someone who's ever felt like Peter did, like God's going to pass you by because your failure or your guilt or your sin, I want you to meet the person who reached out to Peter, Jesus. Jesus still does that today. Christ is still seeking out fishers of men, looking for the source of leaders, not who are perfect, but who walk with a limp. We may let Christ down, but Jesus does not let us down. We may forget the Lord, but he doesn't forget us. We may get distracted by other loves, but God is faithful. And I'm convinced that we would all be better off. We would live more confidently, more securely. We would be able to help other people more if we could see Jesus for who he is. Jesus is a lover of sinners, one who lifts up failures to use them in powerful ways. So Father, I pray that wherever we are, you'd help us to run to you. Father, if we feel downtrodden, if we feel tired, if we feel like our failure is weighty, can you take some of that weight off of us in your strong, loving arms? Can you give us the confidence, the invitation to run to you, O Father, through the love of Jesus? And can you strengthen us for whatever work that you have for us? Can you give us humility? Can you give us love? And can you show us 
who you are in a powerful, compelling way. I ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.